Well, the Canadian men's national team is playing in the FIFA World Cup literally right at this moment, kicking off against Croatia. So don't tell me the score. I'm going to watch it later. It's a big deal. I mean, it's exciting for Canada to be a part of the biggest sporting event in the world. Anywhere you go, soccer, or let's be real, calling it football makes way more sense. Come on. Football inspires stories and passion. So Swift Mpoloka Jr. grew up on the dirt football pitch pitches of the Southern African country of Botswana where kids played with footballs made of like, plastic bags melted together in tight layers, and there's thorn bushes around everywhere, and it meant that you had to be really careful when sitting down to watch. And every afternoon, the dust that was kicked up would just billow and just leave a fine powder on everything. Now in Botswana, the name Swift Mpoloka is synonymous with football, because his father, Swift Sr., was a local star player for the Natwane Football Club. And he helped to develop the game in communities uh, just around the area where he lived. Now, sadly, Swift Sr. passed away relatively young, but Swift Jr. inherited that passion for football, especially through the passion to develop his community through football. Now, at a young age, Swift worked for, the FIFA, for FIFA during the 2010 World Cup in neighboring South Africa, learning about football development and starting to work on a plan for how to plant a football development center in Botswana. Now, it would take work with local communities in rough neighborhoods you know, creating opportunities for kids not only to have fun and receive training, but also foster like other forms of education and create safe spaces for kids who are at risk. It would take a deft touch, you know, fostering relationships with the local Jotlas, the tribal and elected leaders, the local schools, and local government. So Swift devoted years to this as a passion project. He worked on his funding structure. He built a team of fellow local young adults to help him run it, and he got ready to pitch it to the local government to see if they would support it. But before he started, a group of foreigners came into Botswana to do a missions project. Now, they wanted to help local kids, so they pitched an exciting plan to the local government about turning overgrown lots into amazing places for children. Now, their money moved things quickly, as well as the fact that they weren't slowed down by working with local leaders or the local community, and they were able to get the approvals that they needed for the project. Now, at some point, for reasons of their own, they decided it wasn't for them and they left. And they weren't from Botswana, it was easy enough to move on without completing the project. And but for Swift, you know, a local Botswana who for years had been building towards trying to serve his own community and give other kids a better chance than he had had, and he now faced a problem. See, the local government, you know, generally already closed off to new ideas to begin with, had just been convinced to buy into a plan that was exciting and had good funding and had articulate you know, foreign spokespeople. And Swift was local and he didn't have the flash or the funding. And now as he finally approached them with the plan that he'd been working on for years, the local government pointed to the fact that they'd heard this before, you know, from a group that was a lot wealthier and had stuff together that, that he didn't have. And there was no chance that they were gonna take a chance on Swift. So undermined by a missions project, with a great idea and good intentions to help people in rural Africa. Totally unknown to that group, through their actions, you know, the door was slammed in Swift's face. Now, studies show that our good intentions in service, missions, charity, whatever you want to call it, the way that North American churches have long done, are consistently deeply harmful in ways that we don't easily observe. Now, according to Robert Lupton in his book, Toxic Charity, Christian good intentions through charity often don't have the impact that we intend, as they often don't empower those uh, who are being served or foster healthy cross-cultural relationships, improve local quality of life, 
relieve poverty, or change the lives of participants. Statistically, they don't even tend to increase support for long-term work or increase missional engagement through the people going on the trips. You know, even when there's a legitimate need among people experiencing various forms of marginalization, which is systemically the case all around the world, well-intentioned solutions often perpetuate the need or even create new challenges for the people being served. You know, not only did it leave the local government feeling disrespected, it certainly created a new challenge for Swift and the children he was hoping to serve in his community. Now, studies show it's this all too common and possibly even the predominant impact that Christians have in the ways that we serve. Now, as we're getting started here, you know, please don't hear me saying that there's no place for Christians to serve among people who are experiencing marginalization. Like, I'm all into it. Okay, my grandparents, Henry and Tina Dirks, spent 30 years serving alongside people in the Congo, where my dad grew up leading my parents to eventually move our family to Botswana to serve among people experiencing various forms of marginalization, you know, where I grew up, leading my wife, Taryn, and I to move to Botswana for the first number of years of our marriage and the first few years of our firstborn son's life to serve alongside people experiencing marginalization. You know, I've, I've led service-oriented trips to urban centers in the U.S. and Central America, hockey camp service trips within secluded northern indigenous communities, you know, short-term groups to Southern Africa. I mean... I believe in giving the best of our lives, the best of my life, to serving among people experiencing marginalization. But there are divergent perspectives which lead to divergent paths in how we can choose to live missionally as followers of Jesus. And one of which I believe embodies God's beautiful, loving restoration of the world, of all of us, like right now. And the other perspective causes massive harm. Have you ever heard residential school survivors talk about their experiences? And when they refer to the places that became their prisons as children and became the burial places for many others, do you know what they call it? They refer to it as their time at the mission. These places were run for 160 years in the name of Jesus by people living missionally for Jesus. And within my experiences, I've lived out both of these divergent and contradictory missional perspectives. You know, some of the ways that I've parachuted into communities and done good things and left have probably perpetuated unhealthy systems more than they've actually helped the people that I was serving. And truthfully, sometimes I still reflect more of that attitude than Jesus-like behavior. And I want to be held accountable by our Southridge community and to hold each other accountable to increasingly only living out the perspective that leads us to, as Tom Lowen said last week, remake the world according to the glory of God. Not just good intentions, but actual good. So first of all, why and how do we so often get it so harmfully wrong? Have you ever heard the term doctrine of discovery? You might most recently recognize it from some of the media around the Pope's visit to Canada, uh, which happened earlier this year. It's a phrase that's in the calls to action that were offered by Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where in call to action number 49, the TRC calls the church to repudiate the doctrine of discovery. The TRC instructs the church to actively name that there's a belief and practice that we have that we need to let go of so that we can't further harm people with it. Okay, so in the year 1514, 
uh, Pedrarius de Villa, a Spanish aristocrat and soldier. He stood on the deck of his ship as it floated off the coast of the New World in what's now the country of Colombia. De Villa had in his possession a written declaration. And facing the land as they looked at it for the first time uh, and got within shouting distance, de Villa read the declaration out loud to whoever might be on the land that they were about to take for their own. So he read that, you know, if the people of the land would just acknowledge uh, that they were now subjects of the king and queen, yeah, don't worry, everything's going to be good. But if they didn't, you know, Davila read, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and their highnesses. We shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them. And it goes on. You know, it was their statement of intent. And whether anyone actually heard was somewhat irrelevant. This declaration was just a part of the doctrine of discovery. The basic understanding, which is you know, then made into various legal codes and, and Christian theological doctrines even, that people not from Christian nations were not really as fully human as Christians. And so Christians had authority over them. And this belief and practice system was carried out in global colonization, the slave trade. It became a dominant framework for the Christian church of which we're a part of today. And it's a framework that we as Christians have never formally condemned and released from our grasp. In fact, it still informs the ways that we treat people around us who are different than ourselves. And at this point, not just people from different countries, but different cultural backgrounds or different socioeconomic backgrounds as well. People experiencing marginalization around the world and also in our own communities. Indigenous peoples. People experiencing homelessness. Migrant farm workers. People with food and housing insecurities. And as the leaders of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recognized, this is a framework that's still alive and well in the church. And it needs to be actively rejected in order for there to be a new and consistent impact. Within the framework of the doctrine of discovery, we may have good intentions towards others that we would define as less fortunate, but there are intentions because we have the authority to decide what's best for others. And you know, in this framework, you know, marginalized people groups are just, they're not quite like us. And they actually need us to decide what's best. You know, like Pedrarius de Villa calling out from his ship to the people on the shore, you know, whether they heard him or not, telling them what was best for them because of, of what they were about to do. We with good intentions towards those we would see as less fortunate. You know, we decide from a distance what they need and then we implement it. You know, charity, it's the same mentality. And when Progerius de Villa told the indigenous peoples of the land he was about to invade, he was telling them what was good for them because he knew better than them, because he was better than them. You know, like residential schools, you know, saving indigenous peoples from themselves because the church knows better. Or a group arriving in Botswana doing a project their own way and pulling out the plug on it in their own way because they know better. At the risk of confirming that I'm old, you know, I like the movie The Matrix. Now, in The Matrix, everything in the world around seems real but it's actually just a computer programmed illusion to keep us comfortably within the power of a controlled system. Like, friends, the doctrine of discovery is our matrix to this day. It's a system that we can't see because it's all around us, but within it, we do harm to others because we can't understand that we aren't the ones who get to decide what, for everyone else 
what they need, even if we have good intentions. So what's the path out of the doctrine of discovery to something greater, to the other perspective on living missionally? You know, indigenous author and Mennonite Sarah Augustine points to this divergence in our reading of scripture. You know, starting with the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You know, this great commission, Augustine says, through systems of the church has empowered Christians to colonize the world. When we read this through the doctrine of discovery mindset, we hear the emphasis of you know, authority, me, make, obey, command. But she says, I do not hear a command for world domination. Because what does Jesus command? Love one another. Love God with all your heart. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. You know, Augustine's response to this perspective on the Great Commission is from an indigenous elder that she had met uh, who said that missions should be an exchange of good news, an exchange of theology of life. You know, in this framework, the elder said, the Great Commission is a call to hear that the people we would aspire to serve are saying, we don't need help, we need relatives. You know, last week, Tom Lowen reminded us of the full participation that we're invited into as agents of movement and restoration on earth. You know, that's incredible. Right? We get to jump into full participation with Jesus and listen how Jesus explodes onto the scene in the scriptures. You know, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous, inside and out, true from start to finish. And we get to participate in that. It's incarnational, observable, and relatable to the people around us. And Jesus immediately invites us to move from the condescension of our good intentions, set, uh, centered on like our will, you know, modern doctrine of discovery framework, to being embodied, humanized goodness, accompanying others. Patty Crowick is a, is a friend of our community, and she's a Jesus lover and Mennonite, and she's had a lot of influence on us as a community. In her book, Becoming Kin, Patty says that the fact is that we are all related to everyone, no matter how different from ourselves, to people experiencing marginalization. What's up to us to do is to build relationships, you know, to, to learn how to love each other, to actually become kin. Kin is the word that she uses, and I just love it. This is what Jesus calls us to. We don't need help, we need relatives. We need to become kin. We need to identify with people experiencing marginalization and become present with each other to the degree that we begin to relate to each other. Jesus gives us that example by becoming flesh and blood and being in relationship with us. But Jesus also empowers us to do the same. In the Great Commission, Jesus has the authority, all authority, to invite and send us. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go beyond yourself. Be present with people like Jesus did with us. And he promises that in that authority, in that glory that John talks about seeing, Jesus is with us. He says, and surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Jesus promises ongoing kinship with us. And he invites us into that kinship of relationships of mutuality with others. In Botswana, in my friendship with Swift and Poloka, over the years, 
we ended up working on this vision that he had had and, and that we actually shared. You know, Taryn and I were able to accompany Swift and despite the setbacks and barriers, you know, eventually we had the privilege of seeing this football development concept blossom into an incredible community center. It was even better than we'd actually dreamed of. You know, we spent time just praying together and we envisioned together. We got annoyed at each other. We got to meet some of our childhood heroes together and we really experienced that kinship with each other. And we continue to experience that with each other to this day. Friends, I've learned and have experienced that friendships like what I'm fortunate enough to have with Swift reflect God's intent for us. That's something that's only fostered over time with consistency. And I've learned that I'm invited to that right here, right now. I can't find that in a week-long trip to a community that I don't know, but I also don't need to find that in a community that I don't know. I need to experience that in my life today, here in Niagara. There are people that I've previously overlooked and we now mutually impact each other's lives here in Niagara. And through that, we get to impact the life of our community. Now, this month, throughout our Hope Live series, we wanna talk about just that, about the ways that we can choose the path of kinship, a friendship that makes the difference in each other's lives and in the life of our community that Jesus invites us to do this together as a family, invites us to live and breathe in these relationships day in and day out right here, that this is the way of Jesus. You know, all of what we're going to be talking about, what I hope that you're going to hear is that Jesus is calling us all to participate in daily mission-permeated lives, that people living missionally are not just missionaries, like other people who are called to serve and foster friendships somewhere else that you are invited to live that life of calling relationally right here today. It looks like lives of mutual relationship, of not just offering help or charity or good intentions with less than good results. Now let's stop just offering help and let's learn to become relatives, you know, experiencing the real goodness, not of our own good intentions, but in the embodied power of Jesus together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you help us to do better. God, thank you that even in the ways that we go down paths that aren't of you, God, the ways that we, uh, through the centuries, God, have uh, tried and often failed and often taken ourselves in directions uh, that don't honor you and don't honor just the beautiful peoples throughout all of your creation. God, I just thank you that despite those things, that you invite us to do better, that you invite us into your kingdom and invite us into full participation with you in ways that we can impact each other, in mutuality, in ways that we get to see the face of Jesus in each other, in ways that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And I pray that we, as a community here at Southridge, we'd be able to hold each other accountable to that. God, that we'd be able to do better and that we'd be able to learn to love like you, Jesus, in the ways that we serve and love each other. Amen.